Hello and welcome to In Theory. I'm Naran Khan. And I'm Maria Sachiko Sassiri. In Theory is the podcast where we talk about the theories that help us make sense of the world. Today we're taking on Paleo World, a diet and even lifestyle where you channel your inner caveman or woman in search of a happier, healthier life. The Paleo diet has some pretty high-profile adherents like Miley Cyrus, Jessica Biel, and Matthew McConaughey. But others take the paleo lifestyle well beyond food, cutting out all electronic devices after 8 p.m., wearing these goggles that help you not mess with your circadian rhythms, and even going to PrimalCon, a five-day retreat where you learn about all things paleo. Today on In Theory, we're focusing on the famous paleo diet and working through some of the scientific limitations of the theory behind it. That's going to get us deep into evolution, and from Darwin's concept of survival of the fittest, to the blockbuster movie Jurassic Park, to some of the shadier sides of evolutionary psychology. Maybe the place to start is the paleo diet because I'm sure you or people you know have have been following the paleo diet or at least in the grocery store you see paleo magazines or paleo products. I've even seen paleo stuff on menus. Really? Oh wow. How do they distinguish when something is paleo? Is there like a little dinosaur next to it? (laughs) No, it's facial hair. It's excessive facial hair like a caveman. (laughs) Nice. Although maybe this is a good moment to be clear that um, the Paleolithic period does not include the age of the dinosaurs as much as I would like to believe that the Flintstones could be real. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The Paleolithic period is a prehistoric period of human history and it runs from about 2.6 million years ago until about 10,000 years ago. It's the age of the development of stone tools and it really ends with the rise of agriculture. So that gives us a frame for what the Paleolithic is. Great. And that's a really long period of time if you think about it, but it might be useful to think about to, you know, to better understand like what exactly the paleo diet is. We know broadly that it's described as the caveman diet, the pursuit of kind of an overall better health through hunting and gathering and foraging. Wait, so like we're supposed to hunt and gather and forage our own food? I should say that I know very little about the paleo diet. I just assume the Flintstones. (laughs) Okay, well, so the basics are you want to pursue grass-produced meat, so grass-fed stuff, fish and seafood, fresh fruits and veggies, eggs, nuts and seeds, and healthy oils, which probably doesn't include like canola oil, but things like olive oil, walnut flaxseed, avocado, and coconut oil. More, More interesting and scary are the maybe don'ts, the things that you can't have, which are basically cereal grains, legumes, all dairy, all refined sugar, potatoes, processed foods, which is a massive category. Yeah. Um, salt and refined vegetable oils. Sounds difficult to do. I I think so. And maybe that's the whole point is like <sighs> at some point you get so exhausted you can't – you just stop eating. <laughs> uh, yeah. You're like looking for the little picture of the hairy-faced man on the menu and you're like, I'm just yep. not going to eat today. So I think the idea is that we can't process 
some of the foods that are produced in modern ways today and our inability to process these foods has led to things like heart disease, obesity, diabetes. And so if you pursue a paleo diet, you're going to be healthier, you're going to live longer, and your day-to-day is going to be, I don't know, better or something. Lauren Cordain is a professor who came up with this diet. I mean, it's been talked about for a while, but he trademarked the paleo diet and had a best-selling book in 2002. And we know it's like a huge, huge trend. It was in 2013, Google's most searched for weight loss method. So he's doing well for himself, as are all the other people writing on the topic who can't use the term paleo diet because of the trademark. So they're saying things like paleo solution, paleo lifestyle. So it might be useful to pop in and get a trademark on anything you might sense is is getting momentum. (laughs) (laughs) So what's behind this impulse to look back to the Stone Age as a way to make sense of our lives and to guide our behavior now? Well, evolutionary biologist Marlene Zook calls these ideas paleo fantasies. And she argues that paleo fantasies stem from the idea that evolution moves so slowly that we're better off returning to prehistoric health practices. And so we can understand modern people by looking at early human behavior. Okay, so that's the fantasy anyway. And I guess a lot of what we're hoping to do today is to try and unpack what some of the reality actually is. Sure. I guess the question is, do we want to live like people did at that time. That means like no toothbrushes, no tampons, forget your sunblock. Is that the lifestyle we want? Well, that's definitely not the lifestyle that I would want. So I I think one of the reasons (laughs) I'm so excited to talk about this is because to me it seems kind of nonsensical. Why would we even want to look to the lives of people whose, you know, kind of existences were painful and brutish and for the most part kind of short as our example of how we want to lead happy lives today. And also, I mean, these people were like dead by 30, right? Like living to be 35 is like living to be 90 now. These folks didn't have kind of long lives. Whereas now 30 Um, is the new 20, or at least that's what we like to tell ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there is something appealing about it, which I'll say is, so the way things were before they were corrupted by like capitalism and like, you know, corporate interests and, you know, whatever kind of, big interests I could see how we could think that those things were the way things ought to be the way nature set us up to be in like a really idealized world but we're talking about people who live to be 30 and most of whom died from I don't know getting eaten by animals I'm not sure how people died in in caveman world (laughs) yeah infection probably I think it's fair to say there's like lots of you know potentially good results you can have from sticking to a paleo diet. Most certainly cutting down on processed foods. Like we know processed foods aren't great. We know processed foods are manufactured and kind of engineered by multilateral conglomerates that have an interest in getting folks addicted to certain kinds of foods. Oh um, yeah. Having foods. Did you see that amazing? There was like a New York Times article a couple of years ago about Um, how they manufacture like the most maximally delicious junk food. Oh, totally. It ended up being a book, um, Salt, Sugar, Fat, which is like totally incredible. So, you know, they're they're trying to manufacture like addictive foods, but also foods that are preserved that can like be shelf stable and survive long commutes. And also just like foods that fill you up are super, super, super cheap. So may have not putting a premium on nutritional value, but on some of these other factors. 
And so it, it's definitely not a bad thing to cut out processed foods. And I bet a lot of the results that people see from the paleo diet are a result of that as opposed to hearkening back to earlier days. And I think it points to something that happens a lot in dieting, which is, you know, people are looking for structure or like rules. So like the grapefruit diet, the language and rhetoric around that is like, it's going to flush out your fats if you have two meals of your three meals a day being grapefruit and then you can have your other meal. Well, Hmm. it's not the grapefruit flushing out your fat. It's the fact that you're severely restricting your calories. Right. And so this cutting out processed foods might work in the same way. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're cutting back on saturated fat, sugar, salt, uh, that kind of thing. And as a result, you're just more likely to get healthier anyway. Exactly. And especially if you're comparing it to just a normal diet and not any other diet. But the thing about the paleo diet is that it comes with this whole pseudoscientific structure around it that suggests that following this diet is part of a larger theory of how we can better our lives by looking back to an earlier version of human existence. So that, I think, can be kind of insidious because of the way in which it suggests that there's a way of understanding human life and human evolution that we should be thinking about not just in our food, but potentially in everything we do. And I think that could use a little debunking because it can have some knock-on effect beyond just the choices we make in the grocery store. So I'm like curious to tease out a little bit of this evolution idea. Like like how have we evolved since these, like have we evolved as humans? I, I assume we have, <laughs> considering we look different and have a completely different society. Yeah, I mean, so the problem with the paleo diet, the way I understand it, is basically evolution. So the argument behind the paleo diet is that evolution moves so slowly that our bodies haven't caught up with the innovations of agriculture, basically, and of course, all those processed modern foods. And so it hurts our bodies to try to digest them and makes us sick. But you know, while it's true that some aspects of human evolution move super slowly, it turns out that some other ones move pretty rapidly. So we've actually changed to adapt to our modern environments. And at the same time, not only have our bodies adapted, but also the food that we eat and the bacteria that we have in our st- inside of our stomachs to help us digest it. So we should talk about that. <laughs> sure. So let's wrap up this section. We know that the paleo diet is part of what Marlene Zook calls paleo fantasies, which imagine bettering our modern lives by trying to live like our ancestors, the way that some people think that we're best adapted to live. But this approach to evolution leaves out a lot. Coming up, we'll get into the evolutionary theory to explain some of the problems associated with the paleo diet. Let's do it. So we all learned about Darwin in school and his theory of evolution. His book, The Origin of the Species, uh, which was published in the mid-19th century, it basically exploded the creationist way of thinking that had dominated Western thought for thousands of years. So it was using scientific observation to suggest that populations evolved through natural selection or what we've now kind of come to know as survival of the fittest. So you know, paleo fantasies, which we brought up in the last section, really depend on the idea that we got to be the humans that we are through this process of selection tens of thousands of years ago. So by not living in ways that are optimized for those paleolithic people, so by living like modern people, basically, we're making ourselves weak and unfit. Now, the problem with this kind of thinking is that it draws upon 
the idea of survival of the fittest, but survival of the fittest doesn't mean the most physically fit. It totally blew my mind to learn this, right? That survival of the fittest means most fit for an environment. Sure. And this is where the paleo diet goes really wrong, I think, you know? Like, our environment has totally changed, and so have we in a lot of ways. So in order to be the fittest for our current environment, we may not want to live like people in a totally different environment that (laughs) we don't really understand entirely anyway. Sure. I think it does a disservice to think like this because – you have low expectations for your body. Like our bodies are like miracle machines which change and move all the time, respond to our environments in such incredible, miraculous, reactive ways. And thinking that going back to this previous way is better just like does not acknowledge the magnificence that is the human body. I love that. I so agree. We we don't give our bodies enough credit and human beings in general enough credit for the many different ways in which we adapt to changing environments. I think another disservice that this does is not acknowledge the truth about how our food has changed, how we've bred our food to change in the past, I don't know, thousands of years. Mm. So breeding for agriculture has really changed what, for example, corn looks like. We Mm. actually have like husked corn now. Original corns were, they just look like stocky plants. We'll have to post a photo of what earlier corn looked like. Yeah. But the animals that we, you know, we hunted in the Paleolithic times, they changed during those two million years. So there's just no way we can hunt the same things. And so it's not even a useful framing. Yeah. If we're trying to eat corn to replicate what it would have been like to eat corn by our Paleolithic ancestors, we'd have to go and find some kind of totally unadapted, undeveloped form of corn from tens of thousands of years ago. When in fact, you know, the whole point of agriculture is that we develop foods that are easier to eat, that have more calories, that are more delicious. So our modern versions of all of these foods are going to be totally different. It's not just our foods, it's also our bodies that have evolved since that time. For example, our ability to digest milk as adults is relatively recent. Hmm. And the enzyme lactase, which breaks down lactose sugars in milk, stopped working after we were babies. But then once we started eating dairy as adults, which as a serious cheese eater, and I know you are one too, this is like super crucial to my ability to like survive now. (laughs) So this happened like 7,000 years ago, well past the end of the Paleolithic period. Mm -hmm. And that's really interesting because basically what it shows is that we have evolved since the Paleolithic period to be able to eat certain kinds of food that would not make the paleo diet, but our bodies are totally on top of now. Yay, time. So I think it's really important to think about how recently a lot of this stuff has happened. Um, and a good counterexample, I guess, is that um, in some cultures, like in Japan, where dairy was only recently introduced, uh, many people are still lactose intolerant. So that mm-hmm. uh, kind of gene encoding for lactase, it's still doesn't work for them after babies, for a lot of people there. Um, And so it really shows how, depending on your environment, your body will shift um, and evolution will help shift people to become more fit to the environment that they're in. So in Europe, that environment is an environment rich in cheese. Sure. I love it. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about our microbiomes. Oh, I want to talk about our microbiomes all day, and I feel we must come back to this at some point in the future. Uh, (laughs) But this idea that we have this entire universe of bacteria that works with us and around us and helps us do things is just totally fascinating to me. 
But our, our gut bacteria, the bacteria in our stomachs, is a really important example of this. And our gut bacteria uh, evolves super quickly. And it changes as fast as every time we eat something new. And that means that we can adjust to different eating situations really quickly. And I don't know, some of you guys listening may have had an experience where you travel to a different country and your stomach is like, wow, what's happening? And then within a, within a couple of days, you're totally on top of it. Um, and that's an example of your gut bacteria adjusting to the new environment. And one of my favorite things about the way that stomach bacteria changes uh, is something called horizontal gene transfer. And this is a really interesting way in which bacteria pick up pieces of DNA from their environments to adapt to them better. So horizontal gene transfer, maybe the best way to explain it is it's kind of like Jurassic Park, but real. <laughs> so like, you know, the part in, in the first Jurassic Park, the original fabulous Jurassic Park, where uh, the dinosaurs start being able to change sex and procreate. Yes, so like, yeah. originally they're all female and they're like, oh, no problem. Nothing's going to happen. They're all female. <laughs> but then like they start changing sex and start having new babies. They point out the reason that this is happening is because part of their DNA that they used to kind of fill in the DNA they didn't have for the dinosaurs was from frog genes. And fro some kinds of frogs can switch sex like that. Yeah. Right. Horizontal gene transfer is like that, only bacteria do it independently without any scientists in labs. They can just kind of like check out what's around them and be like, I'd like some of that DNA. And they will actually evolve to adopt up uh, useful genes from around them and in integrate them into their own genetic makeup. So a cool example of this that I found uh, was that scientists discovered that some people... Uh, again, in Japan, hey, my people, um, <laughs> we're able to digest unique marine components, carbohydrates that appear in certain marine life that most other people weren't able to digest. And they're like, how come these people's gut bacteria are able to do this? And then when they looked into it, it turns out that their stomach bacteria had found this bacteria living on seaweed that Japanese people eat and had just kind of integrated it into their own DNA so that now... These people, when they ate these compounds, they could break them down and, you know, digest them. We are so miraculous, can I just say? Like, this is incredible. And I had no idea this was happening. So cool. I love it. So, I mean, this is just another example of how the paleo diet kind of goes wrong because not only is the food that we're putting into our bodies not the same as what was happening in Paleolithic times, our stomach bacteria has adjusted so that it's ready to take on what is around us now. Okay, so our bodies are total miracle workers, but are there any times where that is not necessarily a good thing? Yeah, good question. So we also see that this horizontal gene transfer is the same mechanism that gets used for the development of antibiotic resistance in some cases. Whoa. Yeah, exactly. It's what helps certain bacteria become resistant to antibiotics. So, ACK, you know, again, those bacteria, they're just becoming the fittest for their environment so they yeah. can survive when um, antibiotics get blasted at them which sure. is terrible for us, but good for those particular bacteria. Interesting. So, okay, let's wrap up this section here. What we found is that while the generally slow rate of human evolution makes it seem like it would make sense to go back to eating what our ancestors ate, that kind of thinking leaves out some crucial information about the many ways that life evolves. Remember, survival of the fittest means the fittest for a particular niche. This can change with environmental, social, and other adjustments, and everything around us is constantly changing and mixing up the equation, too. Humans may change slowly in some ways, but others move relatively fast, and our food and digestive bacteria are evolving with us all the time, too. 
So while cutting down on high calorie, low fiber processed foods is definitely a good thing. Sorry, Doritos. There's no need to start following wildlife around with a sharpened stick just yet. Unless you want to. And like you find that fun or something. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Okay, so we don't need to go on the paleo diet unless you want to because it helps give you structure to your general desire to end processed foods and make food choices or something. But there are tons of other ways in which we use things that harken back to the way things were to explain how we are now. And a lot of them actually have to do with gender. And I think it's because people want to understand gender differences and Mm -hmm. the idea that gender is a construction really is like I don't know maybe terrifying to people or something (laughs) totally I mean this is basically the thing about looking back to caveman days that makes me most want to stab my own eyeballs out yes and like (laughs) it's the sexism why has it got to be so sexist man and you know and not all studies that you know look back to our early beginnings are super sexist but a hell of a lot of them are so I want to hear some of the clown towniest like the craziest most zany like what jumps out at you so a lot of the examples that get me reaching for my fork bringing it to my eyeballs come from the field of evolutionary psychology sorry guys I'm not saying that all of it is totally useless but a lot of some of the worst science in this area seems to be coming from that field (laughs) hater yeah hey guys so there's a famously stupid study from 2007 that suggested that women prefer pink tones uh, while men prefer blue because we're adapted to harvesting berries which you know that theory in of itself is not terrible but the study itself was totally aimed towards color preference and not the ability to discern (laughs) color so it's not like you know give people a bunch of opportunities to pick out colors and turns out that women pick out the red tones and the pink tones better no they're just like what do you like and so that already raises a bunch of questions for me and second of all the idea that pink is for girls and blue is for boys really only originated (laughs) in the 1940s so like what it's totally cultural also, there are tons of blueberries, including blueberries and blackberries Thank and a you. million other oh berries. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> Truths. Truths. Oh I don't know. That's the kind of stuff that just makes me it, it it's so frustrating because what it does is it just reinforces existing stereotypes and usually the most backwards frustrating ones and slaps science onto it or the name of science onto it and gives people an excuse to continually reinforce really problematic values and to say that well science tells us so I mean we are as humans like on a constant quest to like better understand ourselves when we talked about childhood I felt the same way like I want to know more about myself there are certain things that I feel like I can't help or I think are part of something bigger and it feels mysterious and exciting to know that they relate to something else but you know we'll post some other ideas but another study talked about how high heels scientifically make ladies look more attractive Uh. but that introduces a gazillion other problems including the attractiveness that they're 
talking about actually being, you know, culturally constructed mm-hmm. and totally subjective. So there are a million other ways. I'm totally attracted and drawn to this stuff. But anytime you see science used to explain socially constructed behavior, yeah, my alarm bells go off. I agree. And I mean, like, you know, I, I also think that the study of origins are super interesting. You know, I work on childhood. I work on the Middle Ages. Like, I'm really interested in these questions of origins. And I'm super sympathetic with people who want to see how earliest examples of human life might have, you know, some lessons for us today. Me too. But I think it feels like the worst examples fail to think about evolution in nuanced ways um, or to take culture into account, where so many of these questions are ones that need to be addressed through a combination of nature and nurture instead of just trying to write everything off as if you can objectively explain everything through our genes when we, first of all, know so little about our Paleolithic ancestors. And second of all, a lot of these scientific studies are themselves kind of flawed in the way they're set up. Blurred. Oh my gosh. So... Just to wrap up, looking at our past to make decisions about the present is slippery business. Educate yourself. Don't just take science journalism for granted. And remember that when it comes to social interactions, we always have to think about nature and nurture. All right, so today we figured out that trying to live like Paleolithic people is not only really, really hard to replicate, but also probably not super useful thanks to the way our bodies, food, and environments have evolved. We have to remember the principles of evolution and that to survive, we should try to be amongst the fittest for our current environment. That means an ability to adapt and to take culture into account. We also talked about the impulse to look to the deep past to understand ourselves today and figured out that while evolutionary science can have a lot to teach us, we should always take scientific studies that claim to biologically explain our cultural choices with an enormous grain of salt. Always. Questions, comments, ideas, we'd love to hear from you at intheorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find past podcasts and more information about us at intheory.us or on our Facebook page. Please, please subscribe to us and recommend us to all of your friends and neighbors and basically anyone else you talk to. And if you like the podcast, please leave us a review. In Theory is produced with the support of Experimental Humanities and Human Rights Radio at Bard College. Music composition and art design by the whiz-bang-tastic Aaron Taylor Waldman. Thanks for listening. I would be such a disaster hunter-gatherer, by the way. Like, literally, I would be, like, picking flowers and making a flower crown for myself and starving to death. Like, that's actually what would happen. I basically, I, I like to believe that if there was, like, a zombie apocalypse or something and, and end times happened and we went back to the beginning, I would be totally a badass and able to survive. But in real, all reality, I know that at a distance from ibuprofen and tampons, everything would crumble. <laughs> I think we just have to kind of channel our inner Katniss Everdeen. Always. Always. Don't ever yabba dabba,